This is the Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio with Scott Soshnick and Michael Barr. Thank you for joining us. Each week we explore the big issues involving money and sports. On today's program, we speak to one of the most powerful women in the world of sports, the National Basketball Players Association's Michelle Roberts. She is the first woman to head a major professional sports union in North America. I'm not stupid. I know that there will be men and women who will always question and wonder whether or not a woman can, in fact, do anything. Of course, we can. But I never, it never occurred to me that that would be the reason I didn't get the job. I, if I didn't get the job, my view was going to be that there was some man or woman who was just more qualified. But first, let's delve into the big business of sports story of the week. And Scott broke this story. A group led by former Florida Governor Jeb Bush and former Yankees Captain Derek Jeter has won at the auction for the Miami Marlins baseball team. That's right, Michael. The price tag, $1.3 billion. B dollars. For more, we're pleased to welcome Chuck Greenberg. He's a former owner of the Texas Rangers. Chuck, thanks for being with us. I want to get your response to the price tag when you heard $1.3 billion for the Miami Marlins. I think it's a reasonable price. In fact, when a billion six was floated several months ago, I thought that was a supportable price as well. There's tremendous scarcity right now. Very few of these teams trade. Uh, It's an underachieving franchise, which actually leads a buyer to be optimistic about the ability to move the needle with all that's happening in the industry. I I think it's a a very reasonable price. Can you make a parallel between this and the Dodgers? You had an owner that wasn't exactly uh, beloved by a fan base, uh, a media opportunity, perhaps the same here. Is there a parallel there? Sure. I mean, obviously, South Florida is not Los Angeles when it comes to media opportunity. It, it, it's got a somewhat mixed history in terms of the affinity of the fan base for its sports franchises. But nevertheless, as a buyer, ideally, you want to follow a, a, a seller uh, who is less than beloved because those can be big shoes to fill. And particularly when it's a franchise that has underachieved or is perceived to have underachieved in the marketplace in a number of ways, that's the act you want to follow. And so uh, there are a lot of reasons why this franchise is appealing, um, and uh, not the least of which is that it's available. Very simply, why did it go past a billion dollars? Well, it's, uh, you know, sports franchises defy the normal metrics from a valuation standpoint because they are, uh, they're, they're trophy properties and they have a different set of economics. And so in this instance, there, there really hasn't been a franchise that's been available on the marketplace since the San Diego Padres, and that's going on close to five years now. Uh, the Mariners never hit the market. And then before that, you had unusual circumstances with the Dodgers and, and also the Rangers. When you look at what's happening uh, in the industry, when you look at the rapidly rising uh, revenues for Major League Baseball, uh, that fuels an increase in, in revenue multiples. And when you've got rising revenues and rising revenue multiples, more times more equals a whole bunch more. And that uh, quite reasonably gets the price well over a billion dollars. When you look at what's happening with franchises towards the bottom of the uh, market valuation spectrum, you know, 10 years ago, uh, a franchise would have been available for a couple hundred million dollars. Well, because there's so much revenue rushing into the industry, uh, particularly when it comes to local media rights, that raises the tide for everybody. And of course, the franchise that used to struggle now are almost entirely supported because of, of revenue sharing. So when you see these enormous local media deals in the larger markets, that actually helps fuel uh, more revenue for, uh, for the smaller market teams as well. So the entire industry is extraordinarily healthy and valuations go up when that takes place. Chuck, this isn't just anybody. 
This is Jeb Bush, former presidential candidate, former governor of Florida. This is Derek Jeter, baseball icon. These are guys that baseball owners would probably like to have in the group, yes? Yes, under any circumstances, but particularly with the Marlins. It's, you know, it's hard to imagine a, uh, an individual who would come in with a stronger set of, uh, of, uh, of uh, circumstances that would lead to a tailwind behind them in Florida than Jeb Bush, given his stature, his family stature, and of course his tenure as governor. And Derek Jeter, you've got you know, the, uh, one of the true iconic brands within baseball, longtime resident of Florida, completely uh, untarnished personal brand. He's, his business career is off to a terrific start with the Players' Tribune. So th- this is just the kind of ownership match that would be very appealing to the industry. From what we know of the financing, the two principal guys will not put in the most cash. How does that work when you have someone behind you putting up the money, yet somebody else is in control? Well, it's all a matter of the parties understanding one another and their roles being clearly defined. Uh, of course, all I know in this instance is what I've read, but it appears as though uh, Governor Bush would be uh, contemplated to be the MLB control person. Now, in recent years, over the last half dozen years, baseball has actually modified its rules to require a larger percentage of ownership from the individual designated as the MLB control person. But those rules are always subject to an exception being granted. They do have the opportunity a media opportunity. The local TV deal is up in 2020. They get $20 million a year, the Marlins. That's lowest in baseball. They don't have a naming rights partner yet for a stadium that's going to host the All-Star Game this year. Certainly a chance to move the revenue needle exists. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, I think one of the key developments was, you go back about six months ago, there were rumors that the Marlins, acting on their own, were very close to doing a new deal with Fox. I understand that those discussions have ceased. And uh, that was one of the key decisions that was made by current ownership was to stop those discussions, because uh, obviously that's a point of attraction for an incoming buyer is the chance to cut a deal like that themselves, particularly since in those deals, it's not uncommon to have a substantial amount of upfront cash, which certainly could be used to help clean up the balance sheet after an expensive purchase. So uh, those uh, opportunities, the opportunity to reestablish and uh, reignite the brand locally and drive local ticket revenue and sponsorship revenue are all things that to an incoming ownership group would be quite appealing. Good stuff. Thank you very much, Chuck. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. That's Chuck Greenberg, the former owner of the Texas Rangers. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business of Sports, we speak to the head of the NBA Players Union, Michelle Roberts, about the controversy over sitting stars in the regular season. I get it. You don't want your marquee players not being on the court when a game is being nationally televised. Having said that, you also want to make sure that LeBron is going to be able to play throughout the playoffs. That guy gets hurt, viewership's going down. You are listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world. This is the Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio with Scott Soshnick and Michael Barr. She made history on July 29th, 2014. That's when Michelle Roberts was elected as the executive director of the National Basketball Players Association. On that day, she also became the first woman to head a major professional sports union in North America. Michelle, thank you very much for joining us. Do you ever think about that accomplishment? I'm very proud of the fact that there is a woman who's doing this job. It is long overdue. The other secret about this about this sport is that there are a lot of very talented women that are working in this sport. Now, many of us are behind the scenes, but it is astounding to me how bright some of the women are that I've met. Um, some of them are lawyers, some of them are not. The ESPNW conference, maybe I should mention that on this air, but this, this meeting the women that I've met 
who are, are working in the sport is just unbelievable. So I won't be the last, and I don't even know why I was the first, but I clearly will not be the last. But isn't it great you can shatter the stereotype of athletes probably, oh, they'll be uncomfortable with a woman in charge. It was Chris Paul who put his hand up and said, this is our choice. Everybody, <laughs> let, let's take a good look at Michelle Roberts. Yeah, so I'm told, and, and to be perfectly candid, I didn't, and I, I'm not stupid, I know that there will be men and women who will always question and wonder whether or not a woman can, in fact, do anything. Of course we can. Um, but I never never occurred to me that that would be the reason I didn't get the job. I, if I didn't get the job, my view was going to be that there was some man or woman who was just more qualified and more palatable to the players, but it never occurred to me that simply because I was a woman, I would not stand a chance. And, you know, thankfully and happily, I was right. Michelle, your path to this position wasn't the traditional path. People work up different sports mm-hmm. jobs. You didn't work in sports. Mm-hmm. How did you get to become <laughs> the executive director of the NBP? No, I did not work in sports. I was confident that I would end up as a, a lawyer doing uh, representing poor people as a public defender for the rest of my life. And that's what I knew I was going to do starting at 13, and I was confident that that's how I would die. Of course, that didn't, that didn't happen forever. But I continued to to try cases. By the time I even became aware of this position, I'd been practicing law for about 30 years, had moved from doing criminal to to civil, did some white collar, was doing commercial, complex commercial cases, principally class action litigation. Very happy working at Skadden, one of the premier law firms on the on the planet. Uh, couldn't care less. Was watching basketball because I could now afford to uh, to go to go. I had season tickets to the Wizards. But literally because a very large case that I anticipated spending about five months in trial and settled. So I had time to do some reading. And I read the sports page and realized that Billy Hunter had been terminated, but his replacement had not been found. And I thought, that's insane. Why wouldn't that they fill that position in 12 seconds? And then because I had time on my hands, I had time to think about what was what that whole thing meant. And the more, you know, thank God for the internet. If not for the internet, I would not be here because I wouldn't have had the ability to sort of school myself on it. But the more I d- learned about the job, the more I said, not only could I do it, but I was confident I could do it better than anyone alive. And so very quietly without telling anybody, applied, and then I got it. Michelle, you took this job, and we talked way back when when you did. And I loved this comment from you. I knew there was money in sports. Do you remember what you finished with? (laughs) No, I don't. You said, I didn't know there was this much money money in sports. (laughs) Tell me about that learning curve and the money involved. Well, since I wasn't making any, of it, <laughs> I didn't pay much attention to it, and I and I was never uh, of the view that that athletes were overpaid. You know, my view was that you know there was it was money and it was fine. I, I just it never occurred to me that it was a huge booming business. If someone asked me to guess, I'd say probably rack in you know one two billion dollars a year. It's there's so much money in sports that I don't know why people work anywhere else. Do you look at it as Tom Cruise makes 20 million bucks for Mission Impossible and these guys, this just falls under entertainment? It, it, it is entertainment. It's, it's, it's a much tougher job. I mean, Tom Cruise is not putting his body through what LeBron James is putting his body through. I, I don't know why it is that we all forgive Tom Cruise's 20 million and go crazy if somebody makes less money than he does. So it, it is entertainment, but it comes at a cost that Tom Cruise will never have to pay, but every single one of those players will pay ultimately with their bodies down the road. I know I say it often, but you have to thank television because those TV rights 
and all the teams now out there can afford to pay these superstars the big cash. Yeah, and you know there are folk who don't think we'll ever see a TV deal quite like this again. Um, I think that there's some things that will probably render that statement untrue, but oh, there's no question, $24 billion deal, that's a lot of money. Can you explain how the money is shared? Some people don't understand, like the NBA negotiates that deal, but you guys get a big... Yeah, at the risk of putting people to sleep, you know, BRI, basketball-related income, is the essentially the 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 profit, the money that's made in in connection with the game, and we split that. At this point, it's split forty-nine fifty-one, and so the TV deal is part of the pot that goes that we share with the owners. And like the percentage went down from last time. There was a big focus on the percentage. Yeah, was part of your job to tell the players keep your eye on the ball. Percentage may come down but total dollars goes up. And it was not a hard sell because everyone understood. I mean, first off, the money was coming in, so we, we were already able to see that we were getting a, a much larger share of, of, a much large, of a much larger pot. And so, you know, every prior CBA started and frankly ended only focused on BRI split. There are other ways to get more money in the players' half of the, of half of the, uh, the V. One of them was to look, take a look at what constituted BRI. So one of the things we wanted to focus on was making sure that the pot actually continue to get bigger, not simply because of the deal, but what constituted basketball-related income. That definition needed to be expanded to increase the pot, and we did that in some significant ways. You touched on the TV deal and said maybe there won't be another one like this, but maybe there will be because it's not just the broadcast networks anymore. You are quite cognizant right. of what goes on in all the sports leagues, and Amazon is now partnering with the NFL and Twitter right. and Facebook. Right. Right. How do you see the landscape? Well, that's the point. TV, how game, the games are going to be watched is going to change. And that, to me, allows for us to continue to be optimistic about how we'll be able to make money on TV. So, you know, live streaming of games. Uh, the ugly word, G, the gambling word, I think that's going to, A, happen, and B, going to have an impact on the the number of people who are going to be watching live games because the number of people who are going to be engaged in, in gambling. Um, is going to increase. And so I do think that there are opportunities to continue to make money on TV, but it'll be very different. It'll be a very different model. Um, and, I mean, just watching the way cable TV is changing, um, you know, there, there's no longer going to be a captive market that's going to guarantee dollars to some of these some of these networks. But I, I, I think it's going to be a different deal. I think it can possibly be as, as lucrative, but so many other factors are going to come into play. Coming up, we continue our conversation with Michelle Roberts, the head of the NBA Players Union. Up next, she addresses the treatment of star player Carmelo Anthony by Knicks president Phil Jackson. It is absolutely unfair that he's been able to get away with what is an absolute dig at this player. Um, And it was not only inappropriate, but it violates the rules, both the spirit and the actual rules. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world. This is the Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio with Scott Soshnick and Michael Barr. We now continue our conversation with the head of the National Basketball Association Players Union, Michelle Roberts. She's the first woman to head a major professional sports union in North America. Michelle, one major controversy during the regular season was resting star players during the regular season. That was one that we didn't have to fight about. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I get it. You don't want your marquee players not being on the court when a game is being nationally televised. Having said that, you also want to make sure that LeBron is going to be able to play throughout the playoffs. That guy gets hurt 
viewership's going down. So there was not much of an issue with the owners to try to, to at least at least acknowledge that there was a problem. We needed to do something about the schedule, um, and that was an easy one. We we agreed that we needed to to do something about lengthening the season. We agreed that the preseason was 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 a place where we could talk about giving guys some some opportunities not to have to play back to backs, um, to help us reduce the number of back to backs. There's still more work to be done because at the end of the season. You know those pl- those teams that are in playoff contention want the l- want to make sure that they don't get their guys injured, and so it's it's an issue. The question, the, the way to solve it, of course, is to reduce the number of games. Again, we're on the same page with the owners. Everyone knows you reduce the number of games, you reduce the amount of money. Speaking of the players, there was a moment that came up: Carmelo Anthony and Phil Jackson. Um, uh, and I want to I want to use the kind of a direct quote from Phil Jackson here. He said that uh, about Carmelo Anthony after a dismal New York Knicks season that uh, he has not been able to win with us on the court. And and the inference was, well, maybe he should go off to another team. And you came out and said, hey, wait a minute. Uh, You can't say that. You know, there are rules and I didn't make them. And I you know, learned to some extent accept them and I one of the rules is that a player um, even though he might be desperately wanting to leave a team can't say that he can't publicly you know announce that his desire to leave the team um, and players who have done that have been you know, consistent with the rules fined um, the theory is that that is bad for the game to 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 badmouth the team well I don't think that the commissioner disagrees with me that it is bad for the game for owners GMs coaches whatever to badmouth a player um, and I sat back and and I thought Jackson was in the comments that preceded the, that and those comments were pretty close to the line in my view arguably even crossed the line in terms of being critical of this player um, but at that point it was enough and it was especially enough to me because I thought Mello was being quite quite a quite a gentleman and not responding earlier to what everyone else understood were were hits. And so I remain incredibly, incredibly disappointed that Jackson has not been reprimanded. Um, I, I'm still perhaps hopeful and, and and foolishly hopeful, but it is it is absolutely unfair that he's been able to get away with what is an absolute dig at this player. Um, and it was not only inappropriate, but it violates the rules, both the spirit and the actual rules. So I'm, I'm still waiting, but um, I'm told I'm, I might be waiting in vain. Michelle, let's change topics. Where do you stand on taxpayer funding of arenas? I'd be cutting my own throat to say that there is a problem with that. I mean, you know, obviously, the, the more beautiful the arena, the more interested the, 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 the fans. I think it does enhance fan appreciation of the game. Having said that, as a taxpayer, it is astounding. Good, well, let's put it this way. In my civilian life, if I were in the city council, I'd have been one of those no votes. But, you know, as, a, as someone that, that works in this sport, um, I see the advantages that, that it does bring to have a, to have a spectacular arena that, that can attract fans. I hope the fans know they're paying for it. This recent contract that came up that was negotiated, it pretty much went smooth and clean compared to some other negotiations. I guess I wonder what was the secret in this negotiation? What was the aha moment compared to what happened in the past? You know, I think that the real difference was there was no Billy Hunter and there was no David Stern. Um, And I think those men had so much history that they were doomed to repeat it. Um, 
you know, Adam had been engaged, obviously, in CBA negotiations since he's worked at the league for a while, but he'd not been in that seat. And we went out of our way to just make it just be different and feel different. And that wasn't hard for me since I wasn't there. I mean, everyone was trying to figure me out, right? And so we had a different team. No, I mean, to the extent there were members of the team that had baggage, and I at least insisted to be kept out of the room, um, that we you know, behave like adults and stop focusing solely on BRI. So we you know we did this subcommittee the model. Um, we agreed on the, the varying issues, both economic and non-economic that we wanted to talk about, and then split into subcommittees and, and had meetings simultaneously and, and, and actually started working on things that we could either agree on or we didn't disagree as much on. And so I noticed that we were checking things off the box. And when you start to sort of get into a pattern of realizing, oh, you know, we actually can make progress, then you do make progress. That's Michelle Roberts, the head of the NBA Players Union. Up next, Michelle recalls a conversation the Knicks' Carmelo Anthony had with the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, Wes Edens, during a break in negotiations between the players and the owners. He and, and Melo were just having a conversation about Brexit. 99.9% of Americans don't even know what that is. And I'm watching a stupid athlete, using air quotes, by the way, um, having a very, very high-level conversation. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world. This is the Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio with Scott Soshnick and Michael Barr. We continue our conversation with one of the most powerful women in sports. She's Michelle Roberts, who in 2014 became the first woman to head a major professional sports union in North America when she was asked to lead the NBA Players Union. Michelle, how helpful was it to have star players like LeBron, Steph Curry, Carmelo Anthony engaged in the negotiations? When these guys talk, people listen. And they did listen. I mean, we had, you know, the Cleveland's uh, owner was on, Dan Gilbert was on the Labor Committee. Um, We had... I, li- I liked him quite a bit. We had Golden State, we had Boston, we had Milwaukee. I mean, the, the owners were respectful. And I think it's because we were respectful. What I really appreciated, I mean, we probably had 90, 90 meetings all told, but there were meetings when you know, the lawyers, you know, the, the league, the, the PA shut up. And you'd see players and owners, in fact, engaged in, in, in dialogue and conversation. That was, I, w- I wish we could have recorded that because I think that everyone should understand that that's what this thing is all about. And Adam had had the same good sense that I did to when that happened, just let it happen and, and just let it be organic. And so it was just a different feel. David Stern and Adam, they didn't listen to me, Michael. I have said forever, <laughs> these sessions should be recorded because, and here's a big buzzword in sports these days, ready? Mm-hmm. It's content. That is great content. You could have shown that on NBA.com. You could have streamed it on your website. I listen to you every day. I agree, man. People want to see. I'd like to see Michael Jordan as owner talking to LeBron James, the franchise, as leader of union. What does that look like? What does that sound like? I agree. I mean, you know, in retrospect, it it sounds like a great idea. At the time, you know, as you know, we, we wanted to keep negotiations out of the media. So a lot of it was to try to take this seriously. But I will. I will say this, I will go to my grave recalling some of the moments. Um, I, my favorite con- was a side conversation, actually. It was, um, who was the Milwaukee Bucks owner? It was Mark Lazary or Wes Edens? It was Wes. Uh, he and, and, and Mello were just having a conversation about Brexit. And, and I sat there, just during a break, and I sat there saying, 99.9% of Americans, don't even, this was before the vote, they would you know, sort of contemplate what would happen if it passed. 99.9% of Americans don't even know what that is. And I'm watching a stupid athlete, using air quotes, by the way, 
um, having a very, very high level conversation with, you know, and, and it was, it was ma- magnificent. I, I, I wish that's the kind of content I would love to put on, but watching Chris Paul and, and Michael Jordan, you know, sort of go back and forth about free agency. Can't make that but stuff Michael, up. Should, should we tell our audience that Mark Lazary is going to be on the program in a couple of weeks? Oh, is he? <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, man. I already brought the uh, Cokes, man, so I'm all set. <laughs> but you said something in a, in a light, little lighter moment, mm. and you're an NBA fan, oh, too. To the, How to, do you separate that when you're representing the players, and then you realize, hey, I am a fan of this player, too? It, it was harder initially. Uh, right, because you know, like everyone, you know, I was meeting people who I would I admired, but then you know, after a minute, you realize that this is this is my job, right? And, and when when we're able to have real conversations about workplace issues, then you know, all the fan stuff goes away because they're, they're not interested in giving me an autograph; they're interested in answers, and my job is to provide it. So you know, every now and again, I will feel a little starstruck, but most of the time, and that's fine. I and mean, that's that's the, that's right. That's part of the the, the reason I love the job. But most of it is actually solving real problems, and that's that's what I'm paid to do. Magic Johnson told me years ago when he wanted to get involved in business, he could go into some CEO's office. But if he couldn't articulate or know his stuff, as he said, mm-hmm. the CEO would ask for an autograph right. for his kid right. or to the wall <laughs> and right. send them packing. And then go. Your guys, I don't know when it changed. Maybe mm-hmm. it was Michael or maybe a little after Michael. But there has been a growth in players understanding the value of their brands mm-hmm. of what they can accomplish mm-hmm. of their global audience everything has changed for players mm-hmm. how do you help them with that you know it's it, what's remarkable is for most of them i don't I, you know i just i sort of remove barriers but it is incredible especially our, and i don't want to say exclude i'm not saying exclusively our marquee players but but our marquee players are and all of them are on some levels ceos of their own brand and they, you know, those who are most successful have obviously gotten there without me, but to the extent that I can be of value, it's to eliminate any, any, any new or threatened barriers to their ability to, to, to grow their brand. We have and continue to try to improve on the programs for those players who are new to this, who don't really understand or are being just horribly advised. Um, and so you know, the, the interest is there. I think Michael actually did start it. He, he, he became a brand in a way that no other player. And it's sad because there were obviously great players that preceded him. But he understood the business of basketball in a way that I don't think many of his predecessors did, but just about all of his successors do. And so th- this is a business. And our guys, even in our discussions about group licensing, they get it. I mean, we don't have to spoon feed anybody. They get it. They understand the value of the brand, how we enhancing the value of the brand, why it is that we can probably do a better job. If not, no, I don't want to say probably will do a better job in, in, in promoting the brand. Um, these are businessmen who get that their bodies are the way that they make a living. It, it's not simply playing a game. It's business. And you brought up the group license. There's been mm-hmm. a shift now. And all yep. this branding is fueling that. The way it used to work was the NBA would have cut you guys a check mm-hmm. and that got distributed to all your players. Right. They could use the likenesses in right. video games mm-hmm. and soft drinks, sneakers, mm-hmm. things like that. You changed all that. You said, no, 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 we can do that mm-hmm. better. So now you've taken that in-house. Yep. What sort of monumental challenge is that and what do we expect it to look like? Well, we knew we wanted to take them back. Um, but we, you know, we needed to, cause I'm not going to do anything wrong. So we needed to understand the value of what we had and figure out how, 
whether or not it made sense to take it back. Um, and if we did, how we could, in fact, you know, build a brand and, and, and enhance the brand. The real challenge was I didn't have anybody on staff that had any experience in marketing or licensing at all. Um, I ended up hiring a CMO, um, and he had no staff because, again, we, were ne- we needed to figure out whether or not there was any wisdom to this, this grand plan. Um, having decided and spent two years literally just understanding the market, understanding you know, what the, and the league had done, what other PAs had done, and being convinced that we could do it and we could do it better, uh, we now have to create an infrastructure. So I'm spending more hours than the good Lord has given me getting, helping to get a staff ready. Um, getting space, you know, understanding again the the transition that we have to go through with the league because obviously the league has has and continues to to cut deals, um, calming the market because people are concerned, understandably that oh my God, what are they doing? Are they going to destroy this? I mean, the, the, the Nike is a is a new sponsor with the league, and we've had to make sure make sure they understand we're not going to disrupt or blow anything up. So there aren't enough hours in the day, but it's not there's nothing more exciting than this, and the players are completely and thoroughly engaged. It's, it's, it's fun. And we're creating something that's never been done by this union, though it's been done quite successfully by others. And we're, having, we're getting a lot of help from our sister, or as you say, brother unions in that respect. If there was one thing, as my father used to say, God rest his soul, we got to do something about this here. What would that one thing be in the league that needs to be changed? It's the, one of, probably going to be the hardest thing we do. Um, I have to organize the D-League. In terms of maybe a, being a fully fledged minor league, mm-hmm. or who can go, or yeah, yeah. in what regard is it just? It's because the the, the a the D league is, is expanding. The the league, I think, wisely appreciates that there is room for another league that can complement the NBA, um, and it is and they're only comfortable with it if they can control it. So. You will see in the next few years that every current NBA team is going to have a D-League affiliate. I mean, that's almost the case now. Um, and there's already, consistent with the new CBA, we, we're going to have these two, two-way two players um, where guys can be under contract uh, to an NBA team but detailed to the D-League with some ability to come up. Um, and we did that in exchange, with, A, because we think it's a good idea, and then B, because it was a way to get some more roster space. Beef sitting on the bench. And beef sitting on right. the bench. And, you know, there are also some players um, who don't want to have to go to Europe or elsewhere to play, and there's an opportunity to, to stay here and, and learn how to become an NBA player um, and, and be able to do it at home and make some decent money. Those are the two-way players. The D-League players, I mean, I frequently... I shouldn't say frequently, but on occasion we'll get a phone call or a player will get a question from a D-League player that will ask, well, what, it, what about us? And it, 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 it frankly is a fair question. And so we've got to figure out how we can do something about that, that league, which is we can't ignore anymore because you know, I, I go to team meetings and I'll be told, that, well, so-and-so has just been sent down to the D-League. So I can't ignore it. Are you looking at wearable technology at all? The NFLPA oh just signed a deal with, with Whoop. Whoop. Yeah. 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 I mean, but this is an exploding sector, especially for athletes, because they like to use it in their personal training anyway. Right. Now that we, now that we again, have our, have our group licensing rights back, we are exploring opportunities in that space. You know, the, the first thing that everybody has to sort of get resolved is, is who owns the data. I think the answer is, is un, unquestionably clear. The players do. And the NFL deal, it, it, it right. was the it, players it, own the data. It, it presupposes that... But and the, but the sort of ugly secret that no one's really wanting to talk about is that that may or may, that may be a fight 
that that is that's going to be had between the leagues and the players' associations. I mean, it, it there's I think there's this is no, litigated Michelle coming back. Well, you know, I can't help it. When I smell a fight, <laughs> I actually get a little excited, and so I think that there may be. But it was one of the issues that we sort of left unresolved in our negotiations, and I and I, I don't want to get ahead of the the NFLPA's decision about what it has to say on this question. Obviously, having negotiated this deal with Whoop does suggest that that they agree with me that it belongs to the players, and the players have the right to to monetize it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's obviously something that we're looking at and intend to to engage in. Michelle, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Michelle. Oh, thanks for having me. That's Michelle Roberts, the executive director of the National Basketball Players Association. You have been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports on Bloomberg Radio around the world. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barnes. And I'm Scott Soshnick. Thanks for joining us. Please tune in next week when we speak with Golden State Warriors owner Joe Lacob. 